0: This is Sammy Warm Hands and welcome to the Take 92 podcast. This is my first attempt, episode number one. Uh, this first episode is just myself and my best friend of 25 years or whatever, uh, Odar, also known as Crosby Neal, and uh, we're going to talk about music and life as a musician, and I uh, hope you enjoy it. So I guess, first of all, for people who may or may not know um, who we are, or or maybe they know one of us and not the other, my entire musical life, and I believe yours as well, we've played together. Yeah. Do um, you remember the
1: first time? Uh, in your garage? No, it was before that. Uh, then maybe not. The first time we
0: ever performed, you asked me... To play a
1: Green Day song at your talent show. Yes, I do remember that. And we played had, in the gym at Briggs Middle School. And we had no drums. Yep. And
0: uh, and you had Stage Fright, and so you made me sing it. Yep. <laughs> and, Couldn't uh, do it. Uh, yeah, that was the first time. And then I think we started a band like six months later.
1: Sounds about right.
0: And that, that lasted
1: another eight years or something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, well over that because we started in sixth grade, and then, I mean, we went a long time. Nine ninety eight till two thousand
0: seven, I think. Yep. Yeah, yeah, we had a good run. A
1: lot of material. Got to play. Uh, got to play with Thrice. Yep. That was Indeed. Pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah, Ooh. met a lot of good people and. uh Ooh. Made a lot of friends along the way, too.
0: Warp Tour. We were just talking about, the other day, um, my wife and my brother. We were talking about Warp Tour and the bands that we saw. Mm -hmm. Um, The year that we opened it, right after we got off, I don't know if you remember, the Ataris were playing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And he's talking about, we're like, why are they going on at noon? No shit. And he tells a story of how they were uh, getting heckled by somebody. And Chris Rowe just like whips out his dick on the crowd and just, you know, like suck on this or whatever he said. Um, But Kevin Lyman got pissed at him and he's like, please don't kick me off the tour. We'll we'll open for two weeks. We'll do whatever you want. And so they ended up having to play at noon the whole rest of the tour (laughs) to stay on. And
1: that was like their biggest moment when they were all over the radio and shit and they had to open the tour. (laughs) Dude, that was great because I remember like packing up my guitar and I could hear the beginning of "So Long Astoria playing." Yeah, and I was like, "Huh, ah, ha," ah! And I just like threw my shit, and I think it was in either Chris's car or, or, or yours, like when we drove up, yeah, I think and then just my parents. Like, beelined lined it to the main stage. Yeah. And that was awesome. I mean, I was just actually thinking about that album the other day and how uh, uh, So Long Astoria uh, j- even as an album, a lot of those albums that I listened to back then don't resonate with me today. Um, but that album still like, it's not just a pop punk album. The lyrics are great. God damn it. It makes me so mad because like Chris Rowe writes good songs about love and, uh, and heartbreak. And I know that, that, that idea has been done to death, you know, in any genre, it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter who you are, but it's the way he did it. And, uh, his voice wasn't perfect and it wasn't ultra sweet and it wasn't, uh, I don't know there was a lot of things it wasn't but what it was it was just uh it was perfect for that music. I and think like, what that liked about it
0: though better than perfect. some others was that um he had uh like if you were to compare to you know Newfound Glory or or some of those types of bands mm-hmm. that were around the same time is they had a very clean almost one-dimensional vocal mm-hmm. and Chris Rowe had this really nice Grit on the top end of his range, and he mm-hmm. used that part of his voice all the time. Yeah, and, and it gave this, um, uh, it just had so much heart in the way he sang because he was pushing to the edge of his limit
2: mm-hmm. all
0: the time. Yeah, and when you'd see him live, he would just wreck his voice, um, to, to get there, but he was always committed to doing it. You know? Yeah, totally. it's like he's not just singing some uh love songs to sell records, and maybe he was uh, on some level,
1: I don't know, but, but he believed in that shit. Yeah. You know, even if he didn't fully believe in it, man, well, as a performer, he's selling it. He's selling it. Yeah. Like (laughs) really selling it. And he was such a small guy too. like watching him on stage and, and to project all those vocals. Uh, I I even thought then I was like, wow, like I love this record. It's even fucking better live. Yeah. Like just so much better live. Like they're as a band. They're very, very tight. I love their drummer. Like the dude was just on point. And, uh, I just remember watching Chris Rowe and thinking, man, for such a tiny man, like you, you put out so much energy and so much, uh, you know, I guess you, well, you know, when, like when you play. Do you remember when they did, um, that song,
0: My Reply? God, For yeah. the first time, um, uh, it was before the album came out. We were at the Wow Hall. hmm. And, um, he just starts telling this story about this uh, dying girl sent him a letter and, and how emotional it was. And, like, the whole room is silent. Like, oh, my God, this is crazy. And then he um uh grabs his guitar again and just sings the entire song solo. Mm-hmm. And s- still, like, that, I remember specifically that performance just
1: being just heartbreaking it was so intense it was so good see it was heartbreaking for me because my ex was at that show so I didn't go oh you didn't no that was the one at the wow and I totally remember when it was and I was working that night and I didn't request the night off because I knew my ex was going to be there (laughs) So I went, fuck that.
0: I I forget because we used to always go to shows as a band. Yeah, all the time. And, and there was some times where like one of us wouldn't be there. Like you and Chris. Me and Chase. You and Chris went to the fucking gutter mouth show. Oh god. When it was like the gorgeous <sighs> tour. And you came home, like, I, I will was,
1: never forget
0: that fucking shit. I know, and I don't even remember why. I was at Chris's house while oh, yeah. you were there. I saw you right afterward. Dude, it was wonderful. And you were telling me <laughs> how fucking good it was. And the songs they played, and you guys were just drenched in sweat, and you had your new Mouth t-shirts. I'm like, fuck, I should have gone.
1: Yeah, no, that was, that was one for the books, because it was right after, it was only like a month after um, the first time we saw AFI. And oh, all of us were there.
0: That's still the best show so of my like,
1: life. Oh man, but you didn't go to Guttermouth. That's Shut the thing, up. like right after. <laughs> Cause that show still had the same type of thing. So you had short round was the opener. And,
0: and I sh- remember you telling me how good the like, opener even was at that show.
1: Cause I went, You're a local band, you guys are fucking awesome. They did the song Skipworth. And you still remember the song. I oh my yeah, because I'll never fucking forget it, man. It was catchy as hell and it was awesome um i'm still trying to remember the middle band the middle band was also really really good 98 mute was on that show there you go 98 they were on mute. That tour. yes 98 mute well now remembering back 98 mute was good they weren't great but they were good they were like a poor man's pennywise they, they were signed a um well, fletcher produced their record yes exactly and uh i i will say though they definitely put on a great show they weren't douchey which was also a big thing i uh, they just came out what do you and, mean well, why would they be douchey <laughs> I expect some bands that come out of Southern California to just be douchebags. <laughs> that's it. I, you you spend your life in the sun. You're an asshole. I'm sorry. Like <laughs> I think that's why up in Oregon we're all so fucking sad. Like we have a little bit more down to earth. Like life sucks, and I'm gonna make some music that's gonna make other people really sad, just like I'm so sad. We're down in California. <laughs> It's like, you know, like 98 Mute, they had that song, Slow Motion Riot. Yeah. And like, even thinking about it today, I'm like, what is a slow motion riot? That sounds fucking stupid. Because if I <laughs> saw that, I would quickly run in and just fucking throw my arms around and hit everyone in the face and I'd be the winner and everybody else would lose. But it was a catchy song and I enjoyed that part of it. You know, wait, but they were very nice guys. You, like They just came out me, weren't douchey and I just liked that. Like, they, they just came out and rocked it and we were like, thanks a lot. I, I, I admire that. Okay, you tangent, another tangent. This is all tangents so far. Um Yeah.
0: Okay. That should be the motion, name of this tangent? Sl- slow Motion Ryan. Uh-huh. Um on that same punk when we first heard uh-huh. heard that. Yeah. Uh, it's like uh, 4 or had something. That band Vision. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was number 5. It was it was uh uh closed-minded was yeah. that song? There were so many like short-lived
1: good Epitaph bands around that time. Totally. I agree. Man, uh they were signing up a lot of bands too at that time, and they kind of just came as soon as they went, you know. Yeah, I feel like Nightingale was kind of like that. they put out one thing and then just kind of were gone. Uh, Vision, I feel like was popular before Epitaph. Um, were they? I, yeah, I, I didn't I, know I, who they were. If if my memory serves me correctly, Vision was a was a, an already established punk band, and Epitaph just picked up on an album that they you know could mm. you know add to the roster. Um, I'm trying to think like. Epitaph had a lot, and they had a lot of good stuff at that time, too. Like, I feel like all the time you could just surf their website and just pick up new bands. At any given moment. And I thought that was really cool, because especially when we were young, that was still a new thing. And you could just, you could stream it. You know, you could play it right on their site. You just go to the band profile, go down... And then you'd get to play new stuff. Like that's how I heard new Pennywise or a live Pennywise cut that was mm-hmm. you know done somewhere or something like that. Do you remember? And, uh, uh, that was awesome. My memory of that epitaph website is that was pre two thousand. So that was nuts.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, see, our my memory of the epitaph site was directly linked to when um, they signed um, Atmosphere. And, oh yeah, uh, and Sage Francis, yeah, and they had the whole like rhyme stairs merger with with Epitaph, because I remember people were mad about that. I know they were, and I was so excited because I had just got into these guys, right? Uh, you know, we had heard Lucy Ford and and all oh, her yeah, and, and all, <sighs> those records and personal journals and whatever, yeah. And then Epitaph put out, and my my first uh connection to that music was like, holy shit! Like, you know, Sage Francis is rapping about like putting X's on his hands and going to shows and like i mean makeshift uh, patriot yeah yeah makeshift patriot was the first song i heard from him and it was like these it's a punk rock anthem these are being rap songs yeah yeah these are punk songs and these are folk songs and 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 when they made that merger i remember listening to try to find a uh, trying to find a balance oh man um on epitaph oh, and hearing it for yeah. the first time I'm like dude this is the perfect like marriage of the two
1: kinds of music i'm in love with right now dude i saw that shit on mtv yeah, I remember like, they that's what blew Jimmy me away. Kimmel. I went, wait a second. I just, I've just been hearing about this song. This is that trying to find a balance, and yeah. it's on Seven's Travels Atmosphere. Yep. Holy shit. Yeah. Like, because it, the first time I heard that, like, for some reason, I, I I guess it was just because of other things I'd heard from Atmosphere, but trying to find a balance was a little harder. It was like, hard. You know what I mean? It was, yeah, oh, was mean. Pissed. Yeah, exactly. And I, I was like, oh, okay. Okay, like I wasn't expecting that. I'm into it.
0: Just when it drops, it doesn't take much, and that's messed up. Like this, yeah. And, when the, and the fucking bass hits so hard on that, you're like, Jesus Christ, these guys are hungry.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's that fire there. I wonder when that fire is going to come back. <laughs> oh, no, 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 not with them. I'm not saying okay. with the Atmosphere. Okay. I'm saying just in general. Like, I it could just be because of how old I am and how I analyze music now, and it's hard for me to just take it at face value because I'm always looking for something in it. Uh, I try not to judge too much music by its cover and I try and really uncover the value in it. Um, and sometimes that's really, really difficult because it can be like an onion and you're just peeling away layer after layer after layer and each layer is complete horseshit. <laughs> I mean, I feel that way until... Sometimes because I, I, I mean, feel like there's... I like getting to a point where I can debate things with people about it because they'll be... Uh, especially in like mainstream music, I think it's easy to write off a lot of people. But at the same time, I I do that. But to not be so cynical, I really try and find the value in okay, well, it's popular for a reason. I'm going to cross my fingers and not say it's just because it's marketable. Let's see if I can actually find the value in it. And while I'm doing all of that, I'm not finding the fire, you know, and perhaps that was because that was my perception as a kid. Uh, Perhaps that was what was going on when I was a kid. You know, there was just a lot of it going on, a lot of different types of music, a lot of, I guess, positive growth out of people trying hard There was There was to a lot of, good. like, creative
0: rebellion around that time, and right. people were, I mean, like uh, a punk rock label signing rap acts and stuff like that. I mean, there were people that were just trying new shit, and and it's it's not just, though, there is something really magical, I think, about being young and naive and you know the more we understand about music now that we've been doing it for however long you right. know um you know the less uh mystery there is you know and and i feel like back yeah. then we were very perceptive and, and and we we knew this is what we wanted to do we had made our own records and done stuff like that but still like um i don't know how much of it was just the time and the crazy things that were happening at that moment mm-hmm. or if it was a combination of that and just our kind of wonder and excitement by the whole thing because we were just discovering this music that we would have for the rest of our lives you know that was that was the moment that was our you know first little creative renaissance
1: yeah and uh i don't know i i like to look at uh, like hip-hop for example even on a mainstream level at least if there's not things out there that everyone loves at least people are trying to shake things up it, it it's hard for me to ever get super psyched about it uh it's not just where i'm at in my life uh well, I re- a lot
0: of it's just not
1: it, well it's not it's either not good or it's
0: not relatable to me mm-hmm. um and that was something that was why a lot of the underground stuff hit so hard and, mm-hmm. and found such a crossover is mm-hmm. because it wasn't the same
1: old shit well like last you know? couple albums that it's hard for me to get excited about albums. I don't. I don't listen to a lot of modern albums. I find myself still digging backward into history. Yeah. Into like the '60s is my favorite sound in terms of an era of music, regardless of genre. And I can hear that in your beats. So much comes out of it, and th- uh, th- there's something something magical happened back then. Something magical happened, and it was mainstream like coming out of the fifties and the exploitation of black music and making it mainstream. Cause it was not socially acceptable before <laughs> um, when Motown became a thing. Like I, I believe that Motown arguably, like I would love to argue tit for tat with people about this. I think it's arguably some of the best music ever made in history. And we have a, we have proof of it. <laughs> like it, some of the best producers, had to rise to the occasion to make these things happen. Some of the best musicians in history had to be part of these things. And some of them were the same handful of people. And yeah, those, so, those are session players, right? They were on like everything. The Funk Brothers were on fucking everything. They're on like more number one hits than, uh, than most bands or individuals in history. Um, they were just called in because they were the ones that get it done in one take and they weren't going to waste wax and they weren't going to waste uh, tape. Yep, and that's incredible. And they were they were able to get things done, you know, in one take. And uh, like for example, my mom was watching Living in the Shadows of Motown last night, and I kept coming out from my room because I kept going like, "Oh man, I love this song. This is a genius song. Listen to the way it's constructed. Take away the words. Listen to how it's made. I don't have to hear the words, and it's fucking brilliant melodically. And then you hear everyone playing it. It's played with soul and meaning." Then you add the words in. I don't care if this is a love song. This is such a sophisticated love song. It's, that doesn't exist today. Like, that, that does not exist. Certainly not in the popular realm. No, yeah. and that was popular music. And that was the yeah. other thing, too, is like Motown. <sighs> Some people could say, like, oh, it all sounds the same. Then you and I don't have the same ears. Well, but I, th- I think anyone who's um, not experienced in a certain genre will think
0: that. They'll think all rap sounds the same, all country sounds the same. Those are the go-to ones, kind sure. of. Sure. But, you know, you can say that about metal or, or punk rock or, or, you know, any kind of thing that you have only a cursory knowledge of, like, sure. you know, it's, it's all, it has a similar uh, thread. And so, you know, just but at then, a glance, oh, yeah, it's all the same to me. It's not my cup of tea. But
1: then know? again, it also, there's so much that, that's attached to personal meaning in music. Uh, Motown is the earliest... Music I remember hearing, and like I can date it back to my earliest memories I've made as a person. Wow, and that's like three years old, driving in the car with my mom. We still lived in California. Like, I remember the sunshine driving in an old car, listening to the Supremes, baby, where'd our love go? Wow, that's one of the most influential songs. I can still hear it today and go, I can see that sunshine every time I hear this fucking song. Wow, man, Aretha Franklin. Um, respect I, I, I've been hearing that song since before I could my brain knew it was making memories <laughs> you know and it, it's the meaning that I attach to it though that I think makes Motown so uh, so important it was hip hop that led me back to it uh, For after, sure, Yeah. because going through hardcore and all this music and trying to find what I related to in like my 20s nothing was relatable and especially not lyrically. And I I consider myself a really shitty lyricist and a shitty songwriter. So I didn't really, damn it. Well, I mean, it's the truth. And so I I didn't, I didn't feel like I had a voice or anything to really relate to. So getting, getting to focus back onto just making music uh, as an instrumentalist and then focusing that then uh, into illusionists and wanting to learn how to make beats And things like that sent me on a whole journey of knowledge. And so that knowledge still led me back to like when it came to sampling and sampling sources and things like that and being influenced by certain music. And then those were where you kind of got your samples from. I was always led back to the 60s. I was always led back to Motown. I knew what samples I could put together and make work. Yeah. And it took a while to get there. But then once I did, it... All this research came from it and then when you find through all this research what musicians are playing on what songs what uh producers are working on what uh tracks or with certain artists and then you find these gems like uh aretha franklin i never loved a man the way i love you it's considered the first soul album ever oh wow it's considered the first soul album because it truly deviated from the mold and uh, that's from you know it's that claim is from like wax poetics you know for anyone who reads that and uh, I really enjoy that uh, I think it's a really great magazine and it's not just you know a music magazine it's about vinyl culture about classic music. those who write for that that magazine are fucking brilliant and they taught me a lot about music and things to look at and to consider, and that was like great research material but Once I read a little bit about the album, I was like, well, obviously I I love Aretha Franklin. I grew up on it. But then listening to that album and then um, Tom Dowd was the engineer on the whole thing. Got to coach and work with Aretha Franklin, who wrote a lot of these songs, who played piano and sang on a lot of these songs before she was just, you know, the quote diva and just singing. No, this woman was a performer. And that to me is like, that, that deserves the utmost respect to make that album. If you hear that album front to back, it is fucking incredible. And then even the title track, I never loved the man the way I love you is it's one of those songs that, um, things stop. Like when I hear it, like, um, (laughs) somebody posted on Facebook the other day, you know, what are some of those songs that, uh, you know, when you hear, like you silence everyone in the room? And that was one of the first things that came to mind. It's like, I would tell people at work, shut up, shut up, shut up. Like, <laughs> you're ruining a song right now. Because you're speaking or thinking anything else. Like, it's upsetting me and you're ruining this song. Because it's, it's a powerful song. The song itself, like, it, it, I always try and compare modern day technology to what they had back then. Back then you had talent and microphones. Yeah. Okay, today you have auto tune. End, end of list. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Today you have auto tune and way too much editing power. Yeah, which I love editing. I really, really do. I don't like editing 168 takes. You know, to make one vocal track. Yeah, no. which people do in the industry, which I think is sad. You're not giving anyone anything genuine if it took 168 clips to make one vocal track for a, a three minute song. Yeah, um, I, I,
0: I hate uh, when uh, work with people, and they'll say, uh, all right, can I just, uh, uh, just this this one word, I was like, can we, well, let's just do the verse again, like, yeah, but it's really just this one word, can we, f- and I'll, like, end up going through, you know, eight past takes to find that word that blends with this thing, and chop the whole thing together, it's like, dude, I'm trying to get, like, I, I don't care about the technical shit, yep. I want to get vibe i want it yeah. to feel right it needs to have live energy and you know so you feel something when you hear it like i don't care if you didn't enunciate you know one syllable just right because it
1: had heart you know it had something there right i mean it's when i listened to gladys knight and the pips um didn't you know you had to hurt sometime gladys knight is not always technically on though, because she's such a gifted singer, you have to look for those moments when she's not. Because the whole time, when you're listening to her, you're mesmerized by the person you hear. Like, her voice is not just her voice, her instrument. You get to hear her. And you get to hear... And, and, and it's it's not just, like, passion or any of those things. That song, like, that... <laughs> Things like that in that song, I Never Loved a Man the Way I Loved You, those are snapshots in time captured on tape of those performances. That's what those are. By today's standard, we don't have that anymore. So to me, it makes those songs even that more powerful. That's pretty much a live recording in my, in my view. And, because- and even a lot of live recordings
0: now have... Uh, uh, overdubs and and and, and auto tune like yeah yeah to fix it. Actually, even even live on stage performers now have uh, uh, mobile studio racks where they just bring in their vocal effects and and pitch correction right there on the spot. Yep. So uh, I mean, sometimes even on stage, ten feet away, you don't know that that's where you're seeing
1: Yeah, and
0: uh, and then you fucking knew it because you heard it.
1: Yeah. Like, and that, that to me is you're robbing viewers, you know, of a, of a true performance. But then again, I'm sure their management would argue that's not what people come to see. They come to hear the album live. They want to be entertained. Yeah. They want to be entertained yeah. and they want to get the energy. So be it, whatever. Um, there's just something about classic music and it's whether that's rock and roll, whether that's soul, whether that's Motown, whether that's. Uh, you know what's however you can define garage I think garage to me it gets redefined all the time because to me I'll be like yeah this just sounds like underground rock and roll from back in the day no this is garage what the fuck is the difference because it wasn't mainstream well okay like I, I don't I, I really try not to get too hung up on it so much as just if somebody shows me the music and I go wow this is really cool what is this um but either way I feel like that era of music, though. There's just something about it. It's, it's raw. It's real.
0: You see the raw shit or raw talent. That's and it was easier to distinguish the two back then because now you can listen to a recording and think, "Wow, this is this is pretty great." And then you see the show
1: and you go, "Jesus Christ!" Well, I think what that's the that's the difference too. Is now we can also dissect it into, "Wow, this was uh, beautifully made." You know, like this whoever well helped, produced, Yeah, exactly. Well produced, and I think there's still something to be said about that. And to be able to say that someone constructed something, and did it artistically, did it with finesse, meaning that when the viewer, or even you know myself, views it, you're not getting too hung up on certain aspects of it. You enjoy the musical journey for however long it is. Uh, perhaps if you're watching a video, there's even the visual that accompanies it, and you can get into the song and let it tell you a small story even if there's that um but yeah then if you go to live and it's just this i don't know you can't even say half-hearted quarter-hearted and (laughs) just bland yeah and overproduce live i mean like that to me you are robbing (laughs) viewers and and uh concert goers at that at that point but then again who the fuck am i and who cares what i think you know i don't i don't sell out you know concert arenas and nor do i ever plan to and make think that that shit's ever going to happen
0: well i know but we're uh we're fans and i think that there's a line to be drawn when because um, i'm a person who will defend uh bands or filmmakers or whoever that people on the internet jump on like, oh fuck this guy, you know, fuck Adam Sandler, fuck uh, Quentin Tarantino, or Billy Corgan, or whoever it is that day that they're um, that they have some sort of uh, pet peeve with this person, yeah, gripe They'll with, throw out their entire career and everything that they've ever done because of one little thing. I'm a defender of those kind of people. You know, mm-hmm. maybe a record comes out that isn't the greatest, and that's okay. Because it's part of the whole process, you mm-hmm. know? And I want to hear what the next one's going to sound like, you mm-hmm. know? And maybe, like, okay, uh, let's say Green Day, for example. Warning came out on the heels of Nimrod. Nimrod was a uh, an innovative record for that genre, I think.
1: Yeah, I think as far as a mainstream rock record, it was produced fucking beautifully. Yeah. uh done in a way that was reminiscent of Dookie where it had this I mean but it was so much more dynamic it was but that, you really captured what, the power trio thing kind of like Dookie yes, did yes. except Nimrod had that other uh dimension to it you know what I mean like yeah. they could look back on what they've done and go yeah well it needs to be this like because yeah. it, it, it I remember we you and I used to talk about this when we were kids like the way when you and I got used to get like first hung up on the idea of track arrangement. Yes. As as a as a means to really make your record flow like se- sequencing the songs. you Yes. Yeah. Yes. Sequencing songs because like to open with "Nice Guys Finish Last," awesome, awesome track. Yeah. And then Hitchin' a ride was the next one, and that was the one that they really sold to people, um, which was a good one. Which is odd because it's not necessarily indicative of the album. Nope
0: but it worked really well as a standalone
1: totally, song. Totally, totally. And, and I did think it was funny that that was the first song that they sold to him because then they had like Redundant, you know, later on. Which and then was nice a Guys really finish Last, minor hit, but
0: it was such a great song.
1: Totally, I agree. And um, I thought something like uh, Nice Guys finish Last only really became a single because of Varsity Blues. Yeah, it was on the soundtrack. It was on the soundtrack. Because I remember when going to see the movie, you know, and we're kids, I was like, Dude, this has a great soundtrack. And partly, I was thinking, well, it's an MTV movie. I'm sure they're going to make sure that the soundtrack is very uh, relevant to what you to know we're audience. listening. Yeah, yeah, to what we're listening to, and almost and you know also definitely fits with the movie. And it totally did. Um, it, it Nimrod was one of those those albums, though that I, I think from front to back, it's produced really really well. I think it's some of their best material that they've made as a group. Yeah, that, um, that's my favorite al- album they ever made. Totally, Warning was not. One of my favorites. And that's what I'm saying is, is... It was good, but it left a lot to my imagination. Well, what they took was... I was like, Yeah. They, they
0: found like, okay, there's something else to this band that we didn't know was there. And Nimrod kind of opened that door and they're like, um, okay, let's go a little more in this acoustic direction. Let's go in a little more of like writing some more introspective kind of pop songs mm-hmm. and see where that takes us. And the album... Was it was kind of underwhelming when it came out because you get great rock songs like Blood, Sex and Booze and mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, like Castaway and, and stuff like that. That was just perfect kind of Green Day catchy mm-hmm. songs. Um, but then a lot of it was really acoustic driven, but like but like folk rock, just kind of awkward. And you you hear that and you think, oh, are these guys done? Yeah, fuck these guys, they're done. A lot of people were probably
1: saying, fuck these guys, they're done. Yeah, but you and I listened to like interviews and stuff because we wanted to know what these dudes were thinking about and talking about and like why. Because I know a lot of it was we wanted an explanation as to why something sounded the way it did. So I know from that time and it made more sense to me afterward, but the band was interviewed as a whole uh, a couple of times and it was like on MTV. Yeah, they had the listening party on MTV and
0: they they basically would perform a couple songs and then explain themselves. It was almost like pre-storytellers
1: well yeah yeah exactly uh the vh1 show right yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It, was, it was kind of well like the, that the thing that i know billy joe said he wanted to explore was he said there was this beatles influence that he wanted to kind of get out yeah. which was very songwriting oriented less genre driven yeah and so that's where to me when i listen to warning i hear his version of what he heard on beatles albums if that yeah. makes sense it's like you're used to the acoustic guitar I guess it's kind of your George Harrison thing you're putting into the background. And then like your songwriting in general is kind of this, it is early Beatles. It's, it's kind of their, it's uh, rubber soul structures and kind of, yeah, even earlier than that, it's, it has this kind of pop ish element to it. Um, And I don't know. it, It just put the album in more context for me. It didn't do much for me, you know, past that, but I liked getting that that dimension of it. I like understanding where the artist was at the time to get what you know to get out what they were trying to communicate. For sure,
0: yeah, and I'm I'm with you, and I I was a fan of that album, and I continue to be a fan of that album. I still listen to it on occasion. Um, but what's interesting to me is that nobody saw coming American Idiot, mm-hmm. and that's why. I will always play that role of devil's advocate of people. It's like, yeah, but okay, maybe they put out one thing and and it's somebody's favorite record, mm-hmm. and you fucking hated it, and it's different, and oh, they're over. And four years later, they're bigger than Dookie. How the fuck? No, I mean they didn't even see that shit coming. Sure, they they probably went. Well, we have nothing left. We have nothing left to lose at this point. Um, let's just do something else. Sure, and they did something else, and it was fucking great
1: Mm, uh, american idiot wasn't great to me it was it was good um and it it said a lot and uh i think what was more important than the album was the impact it had on people
0: exactly that's what i mean it was such a it was such a big statement and it was so well received Mm -hmm. um that and, and creatively it was it was different than and it was almost like like jesus of suburbia was like wrapping up the whole Nimrod album into one fucking song or something Mm -hmm. and then it also added the piano elements and some other things um but uh but that's the way I feel when people talk about like you know writing off somebody's career it's like you have no fucking clue and we're sitting here having this conversation where we analyze and and discuss and maybe judge music sometimes and and uh, maybe the people who make it, and that's a conversation that we as fans are going to have, but I just, that's my thought process, is, you know, the, the nimrod to warning to American Idiot, that's the thing that's in the back of my mind when we have these conversations of like, well, even if I'm critical of something, mm-hmm. in this case, I'd never say never.
1: True. Sure. You know? Yeah. You know? Like, well, like, Smash Momigans, you know, we were talking about yes. uh, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Sadness. Uh, I knew that was a special album when I first bought it. I saved up my own money. Bought it at Costco with my, my mom and my dad. Wow. They had the best deal, too. It was double album for $20. Bucks. Yeah. I bought that, you know, I mean, shit, man, what was that, 1993 or 94? Uh, I think it came out Even in 95. Later that. 95? Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. I got out the, the year it came here. out. Yeah, yeah, it's the it's the twentieth anniversary right now. Nice. So. Nice. Yeah, see, and I, I remember it was it, it was below the butterfly wings got me because it was like Saturday morning was the morning that I got used to yes, watching cartoons, but before a lot of my cartoons came on, if I woke up too early, I could turn it into M T V and there'd just be videos playing from you know, that were playing all night.
0: Yeah, after 120 minutes, they would just turn on the random shuffle
1: or whatever. It was awesome. And it was just there. It was fucking awesome, man. Because I I, I still remember that later on, too. But um, I remember waking up and seeing so many videos because of that, that Saturdays became less about cartoons and more about my block of time to look at music videos and get into music. Uh, Then I could always go to cartoons when I wanted them. Um, But it then became like I, I i always felt like i was getting in on the ground floor of something well, because you it was were, like because i remember I was,
0: you and chris were always way ahead of the curve when it came to that stuff like mm-hmm. um you know my my exposure to uh rock bands and stuff was like hearing weird owls version of them mm-hmm. you know like you you guys were always coming with the, the shit that i hadn't
1: heard yet you know yeah and i, I remember just uh like, you know, 1995, I'm starting to get out of cartoons as much, and I was really focused on music. Um, and it was fascinating to me because, like, I wanted to play an instrument, but I didn't have the patience to learn um, type of thing. I wanted to be a drummer before I wanted to be a guitar player because guitar seemed so much harder. I don't know if I knew that. Yeah. Because, like, when I grew up, I wanted to be Trey from yeah. Green Day. I wanted to be the drummer from Wallflowers. Mm. Uh it, it, there were just the I was gravitated to what the drummer was doing and like how their drums sounded and how they sounded playing. I've come more to that later in life. The drummer is the most important member to me now. Yeah, I mean, like I would, I would, uh, I don't know if it's the most important member. They're just they're so well, key. It's, it's the thing that that draws me into a song mm-hmm. or pushes me away from a song, right? Qu- quickest, yeah. Um, uh, it, it it's. Well, and that's funny, too, because we're talking about Smashing Pumpkins and Jimmy Chamberlain. I mean, he's my he's my all time favorite. Good Lord. I just have. I I, so like getting into that album, even before talking about like any of the other members of the songwriting or the songs themselves. So Jimmy Chamberlain was, I think, probably the first crazy ass drummer that I ever heard and just went, wow, like, wow, I don't know how you do that. And it was also, like, uh, Bullet with the Butterfly Wings, for example. That was my first taste of really, like, tasteful musical drums. Yeah. He's not just wailing on on the snare on twos and fours. Yeah. You know, he's really building this song, and then when it breaks open, he's he's just such a force in the band. Like, he really is. interesting because he has so
0: much style that he can make something super technical mm-hmm. sound really fluid and just part of the song almost background mm-hmm. and then if you like watch him play it and you kind of break down what he's doing you're like that's insane and then on the other side of that he can play something so simple and make it sound groundbreaking or something like I, I think
1: i think that's the thing about drummers is that they almost have one of the hardest and most important jobs in a group and that's that you are—you're not playing a tonal instrument; you're playing a percussive instrument. So to be expressive, percussively, I think is a completely different challenge that I think melodic-oriented people don't get. Yeah, and and, and there's something about—I I would say that Jimmy, because um, I—I'm—I'm
0: I'm a huge fan of the Pumpkins and I followed them. I—I I didn't get into them until. Just just after you when when mm-hmm. tonight tonight came out, oh God. that was my first memory of seeing that music oh, video on the couch in my in my mom's house um, yeah I, I specifically remember that, and that's still probably my favorite music video, but um that's oh, wonderful, so we'll get back to tonight tonight, but um following them since then uh, when zeitgeist came out and it was just Billy and Jimmy reunited, mm-hmm. um, there were a couple of songs I thought Jimmy um, really brought another. Um, element to his style Mm -hmm. and the album's full of like really flashy fills and a lot of stuff like that but there's one song united states that's like eight or nine minutes long wow and um it starts on this tom groove Mm -hmm. and you know he's got his tom configuration really odd like he's got you know his his two racks that go you know highest lower and then his two floors or whatever but to the left of his highest rack is a lower-pitched one. And when you watch him play, it's got this really nice, like... Um, And he's moving around the toms in a way that I didn't notice it for quite a long time, but he's actually playing the melody of the guitar part that comes in later Mm -hmm. on the fucking toms. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And it's shit like that that just adds a subtle cohesion that... Like I, I've heard them talk about putting that song together, and like Billy's like, dude, it's just got this shuffle feel. It's got this, to to and and Jimmy was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> he kept asking him to play that, and he wouldn't play it. And eventually, they came up with this um, really, really, really long buildup, and then give you the shuffle. Mm-hmm. Um, but little stuff like that, where he just tweaks it, tweaks it, tweaks it, tweaks it, until he finds this really musical way to play it. Um, And this other song in there called Stars was the same thing, Mm -hmm. where the chorus of the song was really guitar-driven. And so instead of adding a bunch of extra notes, he basically puts one hand down, just plays the kick drum and a china cymbal. Mm -hmm. And it's just... And that's all he plays. And it's such a huge, powerful like guitar blasting moment um and again i listened to that album tons of times before i realized he's not doing anything here really he's doing so much less and it makes it so much more like he's got such a musical intuition that's right just...
1: but in the context of the song he's doing his job yeah and that's the thing is it's it's not about the drums or any one instrument it's about the sounds that are being made and then what you're doing with them. And so that to me, that's that's someone who's musical. You know, like you're a drummer, you're musical with it. You can be musical in so many different ways, and I feel like less is more in a lot of situations. Like, you know, uh growing up, Travis Barker was a drummer that blew all of us away. Yeah. Where the fuck did this guy come from? Yeah. How do you play like that? How do you then take those songs? And then do the twice as fast live, yeah. yeah. And you don't hit, you don't miss a hit. Yeah, that In fact, I mean adds to them. And and then it's just fucking amazing. Like I still think Travis Barker is a, I mean a prolific drummer. And I would say that because he's a DCI champion. He, um, or well, I'd say that back. He may not be a, a DCI champion. I know that he was definitely a competitor. Um, but either way, if you're a drum corps international competitor, you know a lot just to get there. Your yeah. chops are not just on point. Like you are something. Um, the fact that that guy could take chops as clean as that, put them in the context of like when he was playing with the Aquabats, Yeah, you know, that's nuts. And then put it in the context of playing with, uh, Blink-182, you elevated a band that was meh to wow. (laughs) Like, and, and you were that, that, you know, that denominator. That's, that's amazing to me. Um, but then really when it came down to, uh, I guess learning a lot about drummers was uh, getting to see the Roots live and watching Questlove play, mm. because and it was also special because I got to be I was right next to Parker Cohen. Nice. So uh, you know, me and Parker had a great time, and I I don't even know if I went with Parker. It's just he I knew he's going to be there, and it was like you know we both worked at a Guitar Center at the same t- at that time, um, but that's a dude who doesn't need a lot of drums to make many musical statements in a short amount of time. It's like he married groove a long time ago and that Mm. they live happily ever after (laughs) because he just, dude, he'd that be
0: a great quotable. If you were like writing a review, like if I was somebody, if you were like reviewing their show, man, you know, I mean,
1: it's true, but it, (laughs) he, uh, It's not, he does in a way make it look really easy, but part of it too is when you look at his face when he's playing, part of it is I see the duty, you know what I mean? He's, he's there going, okay, I'm the drummer. I'm holding this together. It's my duty as the drummer. But at the same time, he's also, he's got this iconic head shake and I've always fucking loved it. He's chopping that shit up in his head and placing every note so beautifully and never overplays that to me is is not just musical that's magical um that reminds me of like when getting shown or asked you know hey man have you heard gene krupa you should listen to old gene krupa recordings and that's a drummer and i mean the dude's doing it in the 30s and 40s it's the dude who who came before buddy rich and he went wow I, i see the progression gene krupa you're fucking unbelievable I mean, and and then Buddy Rich, we don't even have to talk about it, but I mean, we can. He's (laughs) he's Buddy fucking Rich. I've never heard drums sound like that. I've never heard a man make drums sound like that. And I know people are, uh, there's, you know, these, I'll say rumors because I didn't know him personally, but he has a reputation for, or he had a reputation for being a fucking asshole. He was a very harsh N- not critic But band leader Strict Yeah Real strict Like a James Brown Exactly I was know. just gonna say, Just like James exactly, Brown you know. If there was a sour note It wasn't just a, Like a feel thing If there was a sour note They would stop the performance They would single your ass out And they would let you know One more You're out With Apparently from what I'd ever read Or um, You know Other drummer friends And things like that Things that they had told me uh, If Buddy Rich found out Who it was You were just out yeah, that's it. That's why there was like this. Um, there was a joke. I, I feel like it was people like watch Whiplash and they go, "People don't act like that, do they?" I'm like, "Oh, fucking right, they do." See, I <laughs> still haven't seen Whiplash, and I'd really like to see it oh, cause really? I know because that's what everyone says. Oh, like, man, Cross, this is like no, if
0: anyone gets it, it's you. I I loved. I watched it twice in a row, and I never oh, do man. that. I never do that.
1: And I loved. Is it J.K. Simmons? Is that his name? The yeah, the, oh, I love yeah. him as an actor. He's and, wonderful.
0: And I had never seen him this way. It was yeah. it was great, but it was I mean. We, We've met people like this guy. I mean, it's so awesome. It's, it's great. It's exactly that, that attitude you're talking. And See,
1: can't I just be some crazy asshole who slaps around kids and puts them down and makes them better? Yes, yes. You could do that. Can't, I mean, I know that just can. sounds like somebody outlined my life and went, <laughs> wow, you know what? I know the perfect person. He loves putting people down. Loves it. <laughs> he loves bringing out the best in people through put-downs. <laughs> And at the end of it, he's (laughs) got a heart of gold. His name's Crosby (laughs) Neal. Hired.
0: When you were describing the, like, uh, calling out the bad note in the group just now or whatever, uh, I was literally, like, picturing you do it because of the conversation we had earlier. of Like, um, you know, the dude giving you bad takes. And you're like, dude, do you you really think that you're on the level of these other fucking people? Do you think they said, oh, that's good enough and went home? Like, no, they fucking did it again.
1: (laughs) Like, that's totally you. It is well because it's if if someone comes in like and if I'm recording them and that's what it is um, you don't have to be a jerk but I had to pre- you know I, I had to uh, approach getting the best takes out of this kid and what it took was challenging his ego because his ego was large great I have no problem challenging your ego I already don't think very highly of you so. <laughs> That, right off the bat, gives me, I feel gives like, you a leverage. Yeah. yeah, so you have an advantage. Yeah, all I had to tell them was, okay, so how did you feel about that take? And I always put the ball in their court. Yeah. You know, oh, I felt pretty good. Pretty good? Is pretty good good enough? Well, I mean, I guess. You guess? Doesn't sound like you're, you're really sure. Do you think people who make million-dollar records are sure that it sounds good? Or are they fucking definite that, yeah, this is a hit? Uh, don't answer that question because I know the answer is you don't fucking know. So how about we try our hardest to get the best fucking take we can right now? How about I think that you're capable of it, and I also think that you're not doing it. (laughs) That's good. So (laughs) how about that's a
0: great way to put it? Is because acknowledging it won't always work that way. Sure, sure, I can't
1: always say that to people.
0: Acknowledging a person's um, ability um, as well as their potential. And sometimes pointing out that those things haven't intersected yet. Not yet. You know? and, but and I'm I'm not necessarily that person either because like uh, like I said I, I'm I'm really way more about um, a good feeling performance than something that has you know everything um, being just right. And I think that you and I are good collaborators in that regard. Um, primarily, we when we would write songs more like in a room together back in the day. Mm-hmm. It was like I would come up with these raw ideas and you were the one that would add all these dimensions to it and kind of um give it this um
1: um i don't know the word that i'm looking for it's like you gave it the body and i gave it some blood exactly you gave it life you know yeah Um, not that i made it the song but it's you start with something and you try and give it more yeah give it life yeah and it doesn't mean that you know we gave it the organs to make the blood work that's where i feel like we got chase and chris they're the ones that really yeah. made the foundation. They made the fucking heartbeat happen. Yeah. And to where we went, okay, that's a song. Listen to it. This has life now. This has something. And it has substance. And we were all a part of it, too. Definitely. Um, and and I- there's something about um,
0: that, that fine line between um, having something that's um, perfect and having something that's real. And I won't say that we ever got anything that was perfect. No. <laughs> but... It was was always real, and you can tell. I mean, I'll hear our old recordings, and I can remember the moments from the session, and like why we, oh, like I wish we would have done this thing a little differently. But 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 it puts you back in that mindset. You know, if everything's just perfectly like quantized and replaced, then it's just a lifeless thing that sounds like every other thing. Yep. In that genre, you know, and like good or bad, it always had character because it sounded like us four you know yeah totally and if you look at people like um you were talking earlier about um aretha franklin and how um you know you're you're hearing um you're hearing more than than just the song you're hearing a real performance you know yeah and uh i feel like there's something okay a good example that i'll use um I read an article in, I think, Rolling Stone recently, where they were trashing Ted 2, and they went, uh, chronologically, it was like, um, I can't remember how they worded it, but it was like a timeline of hating Seth MacFarlane. And I was like, dude, this is fucking... Not journalism, first of all. No, <laughs> but but it went all the way from like the Family Guy pilot up until Ted Two, like all the things that he fucking did that were shitty to them, you know. Okay. And I thought it was so dumb. Um, they talked about his album, his uh, mm-hmm. vocal album, and I don't know if you heard it at yeah. all. Um But yeah, it it's I I own it and I think it's extraordinary. And um, they talked about it just being a. Um, you know, knock off Sinatra. You just want to be bland vanity project, all this shit that you could say about it. Um, but to me, uh, like that's your sure finding value in a, you know, being music journalist. Yeah. Right. But his voice, um, if you listen to that style of music, which to an extent I do, um, mm-hmm. you know, I really, 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 really like Bobby Darren. Mm-hmm. Um, I've listened to a, a ton of Bobby Darren in my life. Um, you know a a good amount of Sinatra, um, uh, Michael Bublé, mm-hmm. um, you know onto Seth MacFarlane, you know so uh, vintage and modern in that genre, and you listen to guys like Bublé and Seth MacFarlane, you're like, okay, it's not the same. These guys are are imitators. They're whatever. Um, but in some ways. I mean, if you were just to put him on fucking American Idol or whatever it is that we judge people by now, Seth MacFarlane is going to blow away everybody in the genre. Michael Buble is going to blow away everybody in the genre. You you put up... I think Dave Grohl once said, like, you put up Bob Dylan on The Voice and what do you think is going to happen? He's going to get laughed out of the room. You know, it's like Sinatra had personality. Bobby Darin had a fucking wit about him, like a sharp sense of humor, and... That's what you're getting in those songs and in then in those performances. Mm-hmm. You know, you were getting that personality. That's why those people made it. And the long line of people behind them who were probably better singers or better songwriters or whatever, they didn't have.
1: Well, you're getting the person. That, exactly. And they that, liked you. Right. And well, Dave Grohl, you know, you were mentioning Dave Grohl talking about Bob Dylan. He talks about Bob Dylan in the last episode of uh, Sonic Highways on HBO. And I yeah. thought that was a really good. Um, documentary series. I really, I'll be honest. I wasn't super impressed with all the Foo Fighters songs, but given Agreed. the time that they were allotted to make those songs, I feel that they did a really good job. Given only like a week in each location to show up, write, record it. Wow, that's nuts. Um, truly, I that sounds like a fucking nightmare to me. Um, but the fact that they did it, I think, is amazing. Two him getting to really dive into the history of all the places that they visited and how influential they were. That was big to me, but he says something about Bob Dylan and he said, you know, I think that's a big, uh, well, he was saying that he thought it was a big statement that he could go to the white house and there was a book of Bob Dylan's poetry in the oval office. That's, and he said that that says something, you know, about American music and about influence and, uh, that, that to me is the biggest thing is, you know, yes, Bob Dylan wasn't the greatest singer, but uh, what he did for other people, his influence, uh, especially as an American, we, I don't feel like we have a lot of musicians that we can, or writers that we can uh, look back on and say that they shaped generations of people. Yeah. And Bob Dylan was one of those people. It was the person, you know what I mean? It it, it was him uncompromisingly Bob fucking Dylan. Yeah. You know, It uh,
0: it was standing for something and not giving a fuck if it didn't fit. Right. This is, I mean, not even, um, not even saying like, you know, this is the future or whatever. Just saying like, this is me. This is what I fucking believe and that meant something right. to people to and, a lot of people
1: and you know he went through a lot of changes and people <laughs> didn't stick with him or uh you know and, and so be it he he's had such a wild musical journey yeah and uh i forget scorsese's uh black and white picture that he does uh with bob dylan it's oh, no direction home i know it's either what you're talking that about. or or is it i'm not not there or something like that. Or I I forget. I know what you're talking about where he has a a bunch of different actors play him. No, 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 not that. No, it's where he literally follows him around. Oh, okay. Oh no, I haven't seen that. It's incredible. Uh, because you're just getting completely unscripted Bob Dylan touring around England, uh, playing in fields for people. Uh, because he, he felt those things were important to play to the real people. And, uh, and to sing songs that he said were about the people to the people. And it was so neat, his perspective. And, like, even looking back on it, he's even talked about it, like, in later interviews, talking about, oh, I mean, how much cocaine I did back then. You know, I, I, I'm i a completely different person. Yeah. And you could tell in some of the interviews, he was definitely on cocaine because he's talking a million miles a minute, sweating, you know, like, looking back and forth as if his eyes are going to fucking jump out of his head. Yeah. You know? But he... It, it was just it, neat to see someone who just was so unapologetically themselves. And, uh, you know, cause, the, uh, there's a British reporter who asks him, uh, you know, so, you know, you're not super popular in, in some ways. And you could tell he's kind of already getting uncomfortable. He's like, okay, well, you know, like what way, what, what, in what way are you referring to? And it was like, well, you know, people don't, aren't too you know keen on your voice. Mm. and he's like that's fine and he's like you know what and uh, he, he says something to the effect of you know okay yeah I understand that I don't have the greatest voice I sure hit all the notes though <laughs> and uh, that was the thing is, it wasn't <laughs> as important to him that he was a beautiful singer yeah. it was just that he sang that he wanted to say what he thought was right and that was the thing It was, I feel like the thing in art to make anything artistic is it has to be true whether or not other people agree with it it's true to you yeah You know, and I know that, you know, all those things are, are multi-interpretable and that's, that's, I completely understand that, but it, it can't be, you know, there, there, it can't be artificial from the get go. You, you, he obviously had something to say, the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll, the first time I heard that was life changing for me. Because at that time I was so conflicted in life with all the horrible things that were always going on. Yeah. We were already in the Iraq war. We had already been in Afghanistan. Um, You know, I, I, it, I was already grappling with, you know, the idea of going through school so far and we learn about how much war we've been involved in and then started and prolonged and, thinking of myself as an American going, what am I proud of? I have a legacy of deceit and murder. And that's, that's what I have to live up to. I'm a white male. Yeah. And white males are the perpetrators of my fucking American history. So that's fantastic. Um, But someone like Bob Dylan telling the story of the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll, a true fucking story. And it's tragic. This woman who worked for a wealthy man, this wealthy man beats her to death because he was unsatisfied with her work and he goes scot-free. It, it, it's fucking terrible. And I, I remember even, like even now I get upset thinking about it because it's travesty and that's the thing that happened. Um, but the way that Bob Dylan wrote about it is, uh, I felt eloquent and, and beautiful you know uh you know to and to you you know who philosophize disgrace and criticize all fears take the rag away from your face now ain't the time for your tears and then he and he and he saves it up for six fucking minutes telling yeah. you the story and to the very end of where they read the verdict and it's like you know you know press the rag to your face and now's the time for your tears it's like that's the true travesty He writes songs like the hurricane uh, yeah. we're only a pawn in their game um we're only upon in their game to me was the most punk rock fucking folk song. I think I'd ever heard because I was really into bad religion at that time. Um, I mean, I can't say I ever won't be into bad religion. I think they're yeah, fucking amazing. Yeah, definitely. Um, truly fucking amazing. And, um, it, I just remember hearing, you know, you know, we're only upon in their game was so, uh, I, I guess it was just a confirmation of my feelings. You know what I mean? And, yeah. It was so nice because as a kid to hear someone who just puts it out there. Um, Man, if if somebody like Bob Dylan, if those songs had never been written and someone like Bob Dylan came out and said those songs now, you'd have the southern states threatening to revolt. <laughs> yeah. You know, like yeah. they'd be like, only a pawn in their game. Fuck that faggot. I'll shove a flag right up his ass. You know what
0: I mean? You, you know, uh, what, what what song it was for me from from Bob Dylan was, uh masters of war oh god because like you're saying it was the same time um uh we were in afghanistan um iraq was about to happen Mm -hmm. um so this is like early 2003 yeah and i remember doing an assignment on um protest music Mm -hmm. and um i had everything from anti-flag to woody guthrie and Mm -hmm. you know it was just it was just all over the place um I, actually i remember my social studies teacher um being so impressed with the anti-flag song um that he had me make a, a transparency uh for the projector mm-hmm. and we like discussed it with the class it was that one where there's no singing on it it's just 10 easy steps to create an enemy and start a war and mm-hmm. i was like dude this is a lot like that lesson in propaganda that we had and whatever and like and this is a lot of the shit that we're seeing right now knowing that Iraq's about to happen come March you know Mm -hmm. and like I remember being in the class like and the teacher is like doing history but we're talking so much about like dude okay we're watching it happen again in slow motion Um, and so I found that song Mm -hmm. just in I think I was just going through like Napster Mm -hmm. and searching for for songs and and that song, um, I thought, the fact that it was so timeless was so sad. Mm-hmm. You know? The fact that um, it was like nothing had changed.
1: Mm-hmm. It, like like it could have been written
0: today. Yeah. You know? And uh, I just thought uh, it was such a... Um, I don't know. There, there, there was... There was a lot of great music I discovered around that time, and that that's that just the moment of hearing that song for the first time i, I there's a few times I've been so floored mm-hmm. by just lyrics. I mean there's just one fucking guitar with live singing on it. There's nothing to it, and the words are so
1: powerful, yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, I think that's the power of music though is it's not that you have flowery words. Or phrases or things that, you know, you can attribute to a genre. You know, like you know that this is type a, a kind of thing that gets said in the genre. Like yeah. I knew, you know, like when we were into punk rock and hardcore and things like that, certain styles of writing were more prominent. So everyone always kind of had their way of making it fit, yeah. you know, into a mold. And that meant musically, lyrically. um and the the pseudo Davy Havoc poetry totally (laughs) and and it it I don't know it's it's more genuine when you when you see that people can depart from that uh or just stand outside of it or beside it and just do what they do and maybe not all of their things are so influential or prolific but uh they still reach the hearts and minds of people and you know can change them and I think that's music, music in that regard is powerful to me, you know, uh,
0: I agree. And I, I think that what you're saying was a turning point, um, for myself, just as a musician, when, um, you mentioned that the illusionist was kind of for you and me, um, uh, Gabe had all of this, um, knowledge and, and this experience in making beats and, and where he would sample from. Mm-hmm. and and just in even just watching hip hop from its origin when he was a kid mm-hmm. you know and see it grow over the years i mean he was an encyclopedia he is an encyclopedia of musical knowledge yeah 100% and, and um for me as well that group was going back in a different way and discovering all this music of you know all the mc's who came before um and when i started it was like this weird you know violent satire of gangster rap or something it was just me fucking around channeling that aggression that i felt mm. you know like twisting ice cube lyrics and making them weirder i don't know <laughs> you know but that, that was my approach at the time was just to make myself laugh and just to be fucking pissed and in your face mm-hmm. and then we went through that portal of like all this music that I got from, from Gabe and from Doug, um, Ogar Burrell, And, um, and that had a huge influence on my writing for a long time. Mm-hmm. I became one of those people that now, like when I see them, I kind of like, I could tell where they're at in their life musically mm-hmm. because they talk about hip hop and they talk about respecting the culture and the art form. And they talk about all the old school artists and they're making all these references, you know, you know, the little white kid, on campus wearing his public enemy shirt and stuff like that. And it's like, okay, I totally get where this kid's at. He's trying to find his place in all this culture. He's diving in going like, okay, how do I fit into all of this? You mm-hmm. know. And I did that for a few years before I finally found, I, it was when we did arms race
1: mm-hmm.
0: that I was like, okay, this is real. This is from my fucking heart. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I didn't, Give it everything I had before, but it's like I didn't find that um, that openness.
1: That I I I didn't know how to communicate um, that connectivity. I yeah, because like, I remember the after because yeah. I was with you when that shooting went down when we were in a uh, CTEC. Yeah, and uh, I mean that was a very real experience. You know, we did not expect a hail of gunfire. Yeah, yeah. For anybody who doesn't know, know
0: um, so our our group, the Illusionists. Um, released a, an anti-violence song in 2010 uh, called "Arms Race," and it was it was about this shooting that we saw when we were just on a a work trip, walking down the street. Mm-hmm. Um, we were around lunch, but yeah. Uh, sorry, I, to cut you off. I just oh, you're good. Feel people, but um, yeah, that that was a turning point for me where it was like, um, I'm gonna really say something right now. And I don't know how it's gonna be received. And the more that I started doing that, and you can see bits and pieces as, as like towards the end of the Illusionist on those last three albums, there's so much more of that on each one, kind of exponentially. And then once uh uh I I did the last couple albums just as a solo artist, that was kind of my um breaking free of of what I felt were the constraints that I had put on myself in being a rap artist that I needed to do a certain thing and, and pay homage to those who came before me. And I felt like I did that. And, and Mm -hmm. we, I don't feel bad about any of that stuff. I, 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 you know, I still listen to a lot of those classic artists and everything. Um, but branching out was kind of me trying to find like, okay, what do I really fucking want to say though? Mm -hmm. And I feel like that stuff in the last two years has been received so much better mm-hmm. than the illusionist stuff, even though I wanted it so fucking bad when we we're an illusionist and we, we tour all the time and we, you know, put out all these records and we work really hard on them. Um, it's time but, and place. Yeah. And I, but so much of it, I feel like was that I wasn't, um, ready in some, in some capacity mm-hmm. to do it justice. And once I, once I found that part in myself, it was like, Oh shit, people are
1: really connecting with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, and either platform, whether it's it's big or small, the point is is that people are. Mine is very small. (laughs) Well, but that's the thing is people are at least connecting with it, and that's where they're getting you instead of the version of you that you create. You know, and that's that's what I think is important, and I I think it's hard to find uh, today. Like uh, for me, the last two albums that I heard, and. It's it's not just because they're hip hop, it's just because it just happened that way. The last two albums that I that I heard that I was really blown away by were uh Open Mike Eagle, Dark Comedy hmm. and uh E uh Pheromone Heavy. Oh, yeah. Great actually, great production on that one. Great production on both. Um Open Mike Eagle though, like they're <clears throat> like you got me into him a while back after you played with him and you had just like a burned copy that you'd bought from him. And, uh, I, I thought that stuff was really interesting because what Mike's doing, I would say is not super mainstream friendly, but it's also not unfriendly. It's just very, very specific. He's also very plugged into kind of a, a certain niche group in LA and you could definitely tell this sound. Hellfire he's part Club. of a, yeah, yep. he's a part of a sound, you know, and it, it, it was so intriguing to me. So when I first, when we played with him, I bought his album, uh, Dark Comedy, got to talk with him. He's such a nice guy to talk to. Like, um, I remember doing that show in Saratoga and we were just up <laughs> all fucking yes. night. It was awesome. Like, I was glad I just got to rant and people were just like, I could watch him like falling asleep at me talking. <laughs> And that was amazing because it was just, that was great. Um, but listening to that album, like, it still blows me away because I listen to the, some of these songs and I'm going, dude, as a rapper, you're too smart for rappers and you're too rap for smart people.
0: Yeah, I, I told him one time. Like, um, you're
1: awesome. When, <laughs> I don't ever want yeah. him to change. <laughs> like, when, when I love he came, listening to your material. He came
0: through with um, Aesop Rock on the Skeleton Tour. Mm-hmm. And I pulled him aside and it was probably. Maybe the third or fourth time we met, probably about the fourth time we met, mm-hmm. and I said, um, "I gotta tell you, this album at the time, Animal Hospital, mm-hmm. is just—it's just perfect." And the reason I feel weird about this is because your music is like almost the opposite of what I look for in rap music. Mm-hmm. One, it's really laid back. Mm-hmm. Two it's mostly electronic mm-hmm. influence in the sounds, totally. and I was like those are two major turnoffs for me when mm-hmm. uh, when i I hear a rap song from somebody i haven 't heard before mm-hmm. and I said, Your lyrics are so fucking smart and so clever every single line that I can't wait to hear the next fucking verse because I never know what you're gonna say. I mean, it is he just keeps me there, yeah. And he has this sense of melody that kind of coaxes you into this little bit odd uh, tonal palette that the that the music has. It's not really my cup of tea, but just the the presentation and his delivery mm-hmm. kind of uh, uh, it, it takes you down to that mellow level. Kind of lulls you into that groove it's yeah. a little slower a little softer yeah. and then you're you're hearing everything he's not yeah. shouting it at you that no. you're hearing everything
1: and he goes in and out of a really i think beautifully done singing and rapping yeah and uh like the first time i heard qualifiers yeah i i all i could do is smile because i went oh yeah okay this is not a mega sophisticated beat i love all the sounds that are used I love whoever put this, this song together. Um, and the vibe was cool right off the bat. Then when you hear him as a part of it, I just went, tell me that there's a song out there in the world that's like this. Because right now, I don't think it exists. No, there's I'm pretty sure Qualifiers is, it, it, you're, you're fucking really onto something. And it, and that was just a random thing. I was just like, I just got onto Twitter and I'm just figuring out like following people and seeing cool shit. And Kim Ya Dawson, because I follow Aesop mm, Rock, yeah. put this thing out and she just goes this. And I was just like, you know, and I saw the thing it said, open mic equal qualifiers. I was like, what are you, but what? Okay. Like, I didn't know that, you know, Open Mike had anything new out. And then, you know, I got onto that and then, you know, fast forward up in the dark comedy and that coming out. Like the first track off Dark Comedy is fucking glorious. It it has such uh power behind it, and it's it's so, um, I mean, epic sounding. It actually like tonally and um, melodically, it's it's epic sounding the way it builds and the way that Mike always maintains this uh, personality yep. every single song. Um, thirsty ego raps. I can't play one song off that album without at least listening to that song one time. Yeah. I have to. Because it's, to me, beat wise, it's a throwback to these heavy MPC beats that are heavily side chain compressed. Because hmm. that's how you move things out of the way and get that, 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 um, uh, whenever the kick hits, you get everything to move out of the way. Yeah, and flux it's got this really nice bounce
0: in the compression.
1: Exactly, and it's well, it's, it's overly exaggerated. And because most people, like, say, if you took that to an audio class, they'd go, "Whoa, you really need Why to dial did that you do back." That? Yeah, <laughs> you need to dial back to the threshold because man, everything is literally pumping in and out in a really awkward way. But it's like, when I listened to it, I went, no, that's the type of thing that I was trying to figure out a few years ago. And then once I figured it out, I went, oh, okay, that's how you do the side chain compression thing. And then you learn sidechain gate. And when I heard that song, I went, whoever did this song, I swear to God, I know Mike chose it as is, like had to have just gone, yeah, yeah that, because yeah. I-, I could totally hear myself rapping on that. And you know, and, and when he gets to the hook, you know, that's just my ego talking. And it's like... You're awesome. Like, it, he he just flows, and he does things so not, they're just not typical, you know, and I, I, that to me is artistic. He's truly, as a person, regardless if it's becoming, you know, a top 40 hit. Well, did I you? I think he has the capacity, but. Did you see him? He's smarter than that. Uh, this, on this Burris, month?
0: Yeah, he was on Comedy Central. Yep. I went, I don't have cable. I went I to my the I almost shit moms. my pants I was the like, other day.
1: <laughs> yeah, dude. I, I went to my mom's I'm the other day and I was my like. Work. I'm like, I played with that motherfucker. He's awesome. He's such a nice guy. He's so, he's like my favorite fucking dude, rapper. So
0: great. And I, I was like, dude, do you, you guys no have cable him. on demand? And he's like, yeah. No. And, I, and I was like, do you, do you have Comedy Central? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, Calling my parents in, and I was like, check this out, and I had my brother turn it on, and I didn't tell them what it was they were going to see. I was like, no, 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 you got to watch this, you got to watch this, and like, you know, my family knows the people I play with. They come out to the shows and whatever, and like, uh, you know, my brother uh, met him when I met him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he hit me up on Valentine's Day or, or for a show on Valentine's Day, and it was like two weeks prior, and everything was booked, and it was like Travis and like one or two other people there and that was it it was in a venue that's not a real venue it only lasted a couple months and no one came at all he played his full set and it was fucking awesome and it was rappers will die of natural causes Mm -hmm. um uh, he was touring on that album and it was so good the worst show ever you know i couldn't pay him anything he was totally humble grateful you know so like travis was there with me that night um my brother and then we uh watching this on their big screen yeah just grinning ear to ear like man i'm so happy for this guy to see him go from that shit show to uh you know playing a good show and then you know we did that private party in saratoga and then seeing him tour with asap you know and then out on dark comedy and doing that thing and dude's you know, doing it Gone from fake four to comedy central like that's that's fucking... It's not like he's, you know, going to be rolling in money all of a sudden or something. No, but, but he's fucking but it's with it's just Mellow so Music great. Group
1: and all these other places that are promoting really good fucking hip-hop and yeah. really specific music. And that, to me, is exciting because I think there there is something going on and uh, I wish it was bigger. <laughs> but then again... But it's there. That That's what reminds me. Little things like
0: that. It's like, dude, that's... He's one of the best dudes in the fucking underground and he just finally got one little shot you know and and, and that means so much to me and just seeing like sadistic going out and getting to do shows with tech nine it's like dude congratulations man that's fucking
1: insane
0: that's so good um and all, all those little things are like indicators that you know what if you just do your fucking thing really well the other shit doesn't matter yeah do you and do it to death exactly and i mean you look at a guy like mike and he tours his fucking ass off and he has for years and he keeps and, up his
1: podcast and, yeah uh, he's got his
0: know. podcast that does very well yeah and um it's very know, funny
1: too i love it he's when he always driving shit on it's awesome
0: yeah and he's got fucking um you know music videos steadily he's got i mean he, he's putting in the work yeah and it's paying off and that that's just wonderful I'm, I'm happy to see that yeah, I'm,
1: yeah me too
0: alright we're gonna come back with part two of this conversation but for right now check out my new song Vacant Eyes produced by Graves 33
2: some days I wanna live other days I wanna die well maybe most days I wanna die but no matter how it eats me it never defeats me keep moving never stop to wonder why I work for pennies over minimum wage giving the minimum of effort as I go but even if I'm totally devoted to the show, the duality of life takes toll. Waking in the p.m. and writing at night till the delight of my creation is revealed. It's beautiful, dutifully developing a labor of love before the shove comes to push the repeal of the grace and fluidity abruptly interrupted by the sound of an alarm in the morning. For a short commute, I'm afforded the pursuit of placating lazy customers, ignoring the fact that I'm wasting my life every hour that I forfeit, forging a fate I'd rather fork it. But every day I wake and rise with fading, vacant eyes, and tell myself a story made of lies. Like some days I wanna live, other days I wanna die, well maybe most days I wanna die. But no matter how it eats me, it never defeats me. Keep moving, never stop to wonder why. Some days I wanna live, other days I wanna die Well maybe most days I wanna die But no matter how it eats me, it never defeats me Keep moving, never stop to wonder why DIY is like DYO Dig your own grave, yo, believe me I know between a lack of support and lack of funds. Face it, me and failure will be well acquainted. I've often debated the rate of attainment. Is it worth the pain just to birth in attainment? Cursed is the day that I first come to make it. The thirst is determined by search to obtain it. I feel that if I leave this perch of despair, the outlook is worse or the output will pale next to all of the vividly written frustration. I'm cut between more than I need in bus stations. Could be living so well if I wanted. I live in this hell for the Safe cause the sun it'll rob the cost, I'm lost in this misery. Belief in my happiness probably will limit me. Some days I wanna live, other days I wanna die. Well maybe most days I wanna die. But no matter how it eats me, it never defeats me. Keep moving, never stop to wonder why. Some days I wanna live, other days I wanna die. Well maybe most days I wanna die. But no matter how it eats me, it never defeats me. Keep moving, never stop to wonder why. Some days I wanna live, other days I wanna die Well maybe most days I wanna die But no matter how it eats me, it never defeats me Keep moving, never stop to wonder why